Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly look at what's going on, or what isn't, in Brexit land. In this episode, as the fourth round of Article 50 divorce talks gets underway in Brussels, we're going back to basics a bit. It's six months this week since Theresa May triggered the famous and famously untested mechanism for leaving the European Union. So we thought it might be a good time to take a good look at where we've got so far, or maybe where we haven't. Let's recap then. On the 29th of March this year, the Prime Minister wrote a six-page letter to the President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, to notify the European Council, in accordance with Article 50, Stroke 2 of the Treaty on European Union, of the United Kingdom's intention to withdraw from the European Union. This set the clock ticking on a two-year negotiating period in which a so-called divorce deal had to be negotiated. After that, deal or no deal, we were out. From the outset, the government expressed its confidence that an agreement on Britain's future trading relationship with the EU could also be negotiated in that time frame, which struck some as rather optimistic since the EU had been clear pretty much since the outset that the items on the Article 50 agenda had to be addressed first before talks on any future deal. Then, less than a month later, on April the 18th to be precise, Theresa May called a snap general election for June the 8th saying she wanted a strong new majority to strengthen her hand in the Brexit negotiations. She was also 20 points clear of Labour in the polls, of course, so that's perhaps not the first time and certainly not the last that British domestic political considerations, and more particularly the internal politics of the Conservative Party, have played a major role in Brexit. As we now know, of course, things didn't turn out quite as she planned, and she lost her majority. Meanwhile, on April 29th, the 27 remaining EU member states unanimously agreed their negotiating guidelines after a 15-minute meeting. A firm but fair mandate was handed to Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, stating that sufficient progress must be made on the key Article 50 questions. That's the financial settlement, citizens' rights and the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic before any future trade talks could be considered. Formal talks in Brussels finally got underway on June the 19th, nearly three months after Article 50 was triggered. Britain's chief negotiator, the Brexit Secretary, David Davis, apparently conceded on the timetable. And since then, well, we've had some platitudes, some theatrics, some barbed comments, a little bit of progress, which we'll come on to now, but really not much else. 
The Article 50 talks, despite a major speech from the Prime Minister last Friday in Florence designed to unblock them, appear to be pretty much stalled. And there seems precious little chance of the EU27 declaring next month, as Britain had hoped, that sufficient progress has been made to advance to the next phase. So, what advances have been made? What's left to do? What's holding things up? And where are we likely to finish? With me to shine a bright light through the thickening Brexit fog are Dan Roberts, The Guardian's Brexit policy editor, and Brussels correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to you both. Let's start by looking, I think, at the main Article 50 sticking points in turn. Jennifer, perhaps we can begin with you and with citizens' rights. That's obviously the European rights of the three million EU citizens in the UK and the one and a half million or so Brits on the continent. Now, there has been some progress here, hasn't there? And, and Theresa May appeared at least to make some concessions in her Florence speech, particularly on the role of the ECJ. So what what's holding things up here? Yes, I think you're, you're right to say there has been some progress. If you look at um, this very helpful colour-coded chart that the British government have provided us with, outlining <laughs> the roughly 60 areas where they need to reach an agreement on citizens' rights, you can see that now a little more than half of them are green, so they have an agreement there. And I think though it's it's likely there will be more progress over the, the next few weeks. And um, yes, we saw from Theresa May as well that there was a sort of a modest step in the EU's direction when it comes to the very contested issue of the European Court of Justice. The Prime Minister said in her speech last week that the that UK courts would take account of ECJ rulings. Um, and that was a, a, a distinction from what she said previously, where she'd mm. been very clear that the EC, ECJ will not have jurisdiction. However, I'm, I'm not so sure in reality this is a very big concession. It seems quite likely that UK courts anyway would have looked at what the ECJ is doing. And I think EU negotiators will want to see exactly what the British government really means by that. That said, of course, I think that the, there are some in the EU, and they sort of whisper it quietly, who, who sort of think maybe the EU is out on a limb on their position that the ECJ will have to have this continuing role for a very long time in enforcing rights. So there I think it's possible we will see, um, we will see the two sides meeting somewhere in the middle. Uh, and what are the other, I mean, you said roughly half of the, of the 60 points, which I mean, seems a lot, but, but what, roughly half of them have been green-lighted. What's, what do you think are the, are the main sticking points of those that are left? I think, um, I think health uh, insurance for, for, um, for citizens in the UK and, and also in the um, British citizens in the EU will be a, a problem. Last time around, we saw an agreement on EHIC cards, which is something really for holiday makers, mm. so a, a holiday maker, a British citizen who might be living in Spain and goes on holiday to Germany can continue to benefit from an EHIC card. But for, for British citizens um, living in, in the EU27 countries, there are, there's a much more pressing issue about their access and rights to healthcare in, in the country that they're living in. Yeah. And I think that's still a, a very big issue that needs to be um, unwound and to be worked out. Right, and a very big issue, particularly in countries like Spain and Portugal, where you have a large number of, of British pensioners, of course. Dan, I mean, what's your take on this? Do you think there are things that, that the British government should be promising that it clearly doesn't want to? And and I think, I mean, do you detect here, which is something that I think I, I detect, which is this is one of the areas where when the EU negotiators complain of a lack of trust, 
this 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 might be one of the one of the subjects they're talking about. I'm thinking particularly of this sort of rash of of, of kind of home office deportation letters that have been going out over the last few weeks. Yes. Does, does, I mean, does the EU trust the home office, which of course Theresa May was in charge of? Yes, I think the problem, I, I, the heart of this is there's a huge disconnect between words and actions in the UK on the issue of treating EU citizens fairly after Brexit or during Brexit, and. The uh, rash of reporting that this paper's um, uh, had, Lisa Carroll, our colleague, has done a lot of fine work in this area, highlighting the pretty sort of Kafkaesque treatment of existing EU citizens and the leaked document that, again, two colleagues of ours, Mick Hopkins and Alan Travis, got a few weeks ago talking about Home Office plans for future EU residency rights to be very sharply curtailed after Brexit. Uh, these um, are are sending shivers and shockwaves through the EU community in the UK. And that is filtering back to governments. That's something that I hear whenever I talk to um, EU ambassadors in London. It is top of mind um, for the EU Parliament, which has seen its role in the whole mm. Brexit negotiations as champion, championing the little man, the, 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 yeah, the citizens the ordinary people. This. Yeah. And, you know, that disconnect between the supposedly warm words you're getting out of number 10 and the actions of the government, I think, is part of the reason that half of these 60-odd topics are still um, unchecked um, because it creates this problem of trust and verification, and that gets you into the ECJ issue that you touched upon. And and really, I think it's easy to overcomplicate it, but it does boil down to that feeling that um, Brexit was about kicking out the foreigners and squishing the immigrants and taking control of our borders. And uh, that doesn't go down very well <laughs> overseas, yeah. funnily enough. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's hard to uh, to also put into practice, I suppose, which, which in, in an acceptable way, uh, which brings us, I guess, on to the next uh, topic on the Article 50 agenda, which is the, the Irish border, which is something that looks frankly impossible uh, to put into practice. Now, the, the problem here, uh, if I understand it right, is that the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, which currently, to all intents and purposes, doesn't really exist in any kind of physical sense, uh, is obviously going to become Britain's only land border with the EU. Um, and land borders with the EU must meet certain requirements. Now, the Prime Minister again promised in her speech in Florence that there'd be no physical infrastructure on the border but how i mean how can that possibly work dan can you explain what the what the nub of the of the problem is here I sat through two weeks of uh, policy papers over the summer attempting to square some of these circles. And with a little bit of hindsight, now the dust has settled. I think it's pretty apparent that um, they were largely fantasy documents. The British response to the Irish border question is to sort of pretend that there isn't a question, to sort of to say that you don't really need a customs union in order to have all the benefits of a customs union, to basically try and recreate the existing EU agreements without the EU. Um, these are raw ways of basically dancing around this big fundamental issue that the main land border between the UK and Europe will have a lot of legal difficulties surrounding it. I mean, but by EU law, there has to be some kind of, of customs checks. Yes, I mean, you know, and this is a big concern in Dublin as well, because they'll be on the front line of this. If there is, um, for example, a big disparity in tariffs north and south of the border mm. on agriculture, which is a massive source of trade over both sides, um, without checks, there will be smuggling. 
with smuggling, the Irish government is responsible for policing the the uh, EU mm. border with the, with the UK and vice versa. And we all know from our own experience of dealing with border officials yeah. the world over is they tend to be a bit pernickety. You know, these are not people who are minded to go, oh, never mind, turn a blind eye. Politicians can say that sort of thing, but officials don't. Mm. And especially in a world in which, you know, there are political tensions, mm. because let's not forget, this was a border that was a war zone quite recently. And there is mistrust on both sides of that yeah. border. And I think that it, it's attempt to sweep this under the carpet and pretend somehow that you don't need to agree these things up front. It's a fallacy on both sides. And I think that Brussels has been guilty of this too. This nonsensical idea that you can basically solve the Irish border question without having a conversation about future trade relationships is almost as balmy as the British position that you don't need any of these agreements <laughs> to have a borderless, frictionless tr- travel. So, I mean, I, it's actually made me quite angry the more time has passed that there is a great lie here. There's a fudge um, that is pretending this isn't an issue and it's actually... Uh, a very, very big issue. Jennifer, Brussels have, has been very clear, um, hasn't it, that, that the onus is on Britain to, to come up with a solution for this problem. Uh, I mean, are they, are they expecting Britain to do so? Yes, very, very much. And it's, it's worth pointing out that what um, what they've said all along is that they want sufficient progress from the UK. So they're not looking for everything to be solved mm. in order to move ahead to trade talks, but they want to see a, sort of the UK going in what they deem to be the right direction. The problem for the British negotiators is that um, nobody really knows what sufficient progress is, and it probably is what um, Michel Barnier thinks it is when he decides he's ready to make a recommendation to EU leaders. So it's not very clear what sufficient progress is on the Irish border question. But it's certainly true that the EU are adamant that the UK has to come up with uh, the answer to this. They think the UK has created this problem. Mm. It's not for the EU to to sort of to reinvent and reimagine its own laws in order to, to help the UK work this out. And they, I mean, they've been very dismissive, haven't they, of the British proposals so far? Yes, they've been incredibly dismissive. Um, they've even described one UK proposal as, as magical thinking, this idea that the UK could be responsible for collecting uh, EU customs duties. And, and again, I think that, that reflects a lack of trust because... the. the, the the EU already has some issues with the UK when it comes to enforcement of, of customs procedures, and uh, there already is a big case against the UK that could see a sort of a, a two billion euro fine against the British government for for failing to cor- uh, collect customs duties. So there's already uh, a problem here, which is I think sort of which is playing into that debate mm. and and, co- and creating and contributing to a lack of trust. I think also you know I, let's get to brass tacks here i mean the the reason there's a lack of trust is because i think fundamentally the british government sees northern ireland as a negotiating pawn um there's very little leverage in the article 50 process that cuts britain's way and we're rapidly discovering that the eu holds a lot of the cards when it comes to determining whether progress has been made as jennifer was saying and and just as um bashing johnny foreigner when it comes to citizens rights is an unspoken threat that britain maintains wrecking the irish peace process painful as that would be in Westminster it would be go down an awful lot worse in Dublin and 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 this is an attempt to basically make this an EU problem and and I think that the the British sort of um sort of 
shrug of the shoulder and say it'll all be fine is a cover for a threat an implied threat which is basically you mess with us and we will screw up the peace process and that will be on you brussels so you better help us come with come up with a solution to this and i I think we're going to see more of those implied threats as these talks stall this is this is where rubber hits the the dynamic of the well you know it doesn't sound particularly promising um let's move on to something else that doesn't sound particularly promising the the financial settlement or the divorce bill as it tends to get called in the UK, there does appear to be a really fundamental difference of opinion uh, over this. Now, here too, May promised in Florence that at the very least, no EU member state would have to pay more or receive less as a result of Britain's leaving uh, during the current budget round, which lasts until 2020. And she also said that rather more vaguely that the UK would meet the commitments it had made as a member. But the real problem here seems to be that David Davis, as the Brexit secretary, has made pretty clear that Britain has no intention of agreeing a, a final settlement before it has some kind of clear idea of what the what the future trading relationship might look like. Um, and the EU, on the other hand, is absolutely adamant that that agreement must be reached, or at least the method must be agreed on how it will be reached before talks can move on. Jennifer, what I mean, what what is the way out of this this, this impasse? Well, yes, this is a real sticking point, although it's, it's true that Theresa May in her speech last week in offering to, to make sure that no one is out of pocket in the next two years of the, of the EU mm. budget, I think that will go some way towards improving the mood, certainly in the current round of negotiations. That will give them something to talk about, whereas um, it, the previous round in August, we saw the two sides come to a real impasse that they just they couldn't agree at all. But I think the, the financial settlement as the EU prefer to call it, is going to be remain a stumbling block because the EU have in mind a, a much bigger financial settlement that the UK is prepared to pay. So, for instance, while Theresa May has potentially put the UK on the hook for €20 billion, Euros, mm. for the EU there's another 40 maybe £50 billion that they have in mind. And that's because um, Michel Barnier, the EU chief negotiator, will say that you know, these are obligations that the UK has signed up to during its time as an EU member state. On the other hand, the British side will say, well, well, hang on a second, we know we, we've got our lawyers to look at this and we think actually you, you, we don't have any le- legal obligation for most of these payments. So they're saying, well, we only think we, we did need to pay a very a much smaller sum, but maybe we have some moral obligations. That's, mm. the, that's the, the phrase that David <laughs> Davis has used. The problem for the EU is that the UK are refusing to say what those moral obligations might be. So I think we're again going to, to be very soon at an impact despite Theresa May's uh, um, hope that this will get get things moving on to trade talks with her offer last week. I think it's worse than that. I, mean, I hate to sound like the gloomy um, <laughs> uh, end of this, but, you know, that we might be at least haggling over some numbers now. But I think that we've gone back to square one or minus square one over this issue of sequencing. If you remember, the whole reason that talks were able to get underway was because the Brits conceded this principle mm. that we would first discuss the exit terms and then we would discuss the future relationship. Now, it, it was already always done grudgingly and officials um, pretty British officials insisted to me behind the scenes at the time, well, we haven't really conceded, we sort of just wanted to get things started. But basically, it's become apparent, and I think most recently with, with Davis's response yesterday, that that was just 
sophistry. There was just the, there was no they they just they just said what they thought they needed to say to get things off to a start, so they could be saying to their constituencies back home that we've begun Brexit negotiations. But they never ever conceded this point in the, in their own minds that you could separate out money from the future relationship. And so we are right back to the to the basics, which is base, which is the, the the EU saying you've got to do it in sequence, and the British say you've got to do it in parallel. And I think the big difference is that, that why I say we're at square minus one is that we've got six months of acronymy and bad mm. blood and mistrust Built thrown in as now. well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I, it just it just makes you wonder why we triggered Article 50 without first thinking about how we were going to schedule these talks. You would have thought that perhaps the, the, the Brits gave up one of their few sort of tactical um, um positions by 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 signing article 50 so uh, early and that maybe they should have insisted on on squaring this question of sequencing before they got halfway down the road i mean it is water under the bridge obviously now jennifer but would that have been possible uh from from the brussels end could 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 britain have, have held off on 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 triggering article 50 legally i i, I don't see why not I mean, they, they could have uh, refused to trigger Article 50, but then they wouldn't have been able to uh, to start negotiations or, on any kind of Brexit at all. But it certainly would have it would have given the UK the advantage of at least being able to work out its own position mm. rather than trying to work out its own position and negotiate with the EU simultaneously, with the two sort yeah. of uh, bouncing into each other and 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 causing problems for both sets of, of negotiations. So, I, so I think that w- there would have been nothing the EU could have done about it, but the EU would have refused to have. Um, entertained any notion of, of Brexit talks at all, so that would have caused huge domestic pressure on the, on the Prime Minister. I think that's right. The leverage was always very one-sided. Um, but but at least that way round, Britain could have also played for time. The trouble now is that Brussels can play for time um, uh, and we can't. You know, Barnier can say, well, maybe not October, maybe December. See how you get along. Come back when you're ready to do it the way we want to do it. And and the Brits have the clock ticking. As Barnier keeps saying, keeps using that metaphor, the clock is ticking. I mean, this is basically the expression of that lopsided leverage. And, and we... Uh, acceded to that the moment we, we 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 invoked article 50 that was the point at which the the leverage was was kind of locked in and and yes we would have had a big row even then beforehand on, on on timing but at least we would have had it on our own timetable yeah that i guess that is the point isn't it that by triggering article 50 britain essentially conceded the the minimal slim advantage that it whatever minimal slim advantage it had in in the talks um, well, so no clear agreement looking very likely there either. Um, let's look now at the, this question of the transition period, um, which was a step forward uh, on Friday in, in, in Florence, uh, at least on, on Britain's part. Uh, the, the Prime Minister clarified that she wanted uh, a two-year transition period that you know, the, the, the Chancellor Philip Hammond and others have been pressing for all summer, really, to avoid a, a kind of regulatory cliff edge that would be catastrophic for, for business. Uh, and she also seemed to accept that during that period, all the current EU rules and regulations would apply. So, so the UK would have to continue to accept free movement and the jurisdiction of the ECJ and to make budget payments and, and all of that. Um, and now Michel Barnier has said this week that the EU will have to consider whether this is in its interests. Jennifer, what do you think is going to end up 
in, in you know the, how this situation is going to end up. I mean, it clearly is in Britain's interest to have a uh, a, a transition period. Is it in the EU's interest as well? Yes, very very much so. And I and I think that's that's somewhat sort of tough tough talk from Michel Barnier, which isn't um, doesn't necessarily reflect the fact that it's very much in the EU's interest to have mm. a transition. It's not good for either side for for the UK to jump off the cliff and and sort of plunge everything into into economic chaos and chaos at, uh, and ports and so on. Um, but I think that what was interesting about um, what Michel Barnier said last week in response to Theresa May is that now they, he seems willing that transition is something that can be talked about immediately after the withdrawal agreement. It's not something that's going to come at the end once we've had a bit more, once we finally get to discussions about trade, which is what he said last year. So it does seem that there's greater recognition and willingness on the EU side to talk about a transition. Mm. But I think for, for many in the UK, there's going to be a, a, a nasty shock when it really hits home that any transition does mean signing up to EU laws, to paying into the budget, um, and, in, and signing up to the ECJ jurisdiction as well. And I think that's, that's been very clear all along from the EU side, that there won't be any, any possibility at all for the UK to design its own transition agreement or have a special deal with the EU on transition, it will have to accept what's there. And, and given the, the logic of Article 50 and that clock which is ticking down, there will be no choice to do anything otherwise. Yeah, I mean, let's call a spade a spade. I mean, this is... Theresa May doesn't like the word transition. She likes to call it implementation phase or whatever. But it's not either implementation phase nor transition. It's postponing Brexit. I mean, basically, it's delaying on all the existing terms. It says, basically, we will continue to do everything as we do now for another at least two years while we work out where we go next. And because we're not working out where we're going next, that's why I, I think it's it's a total misnomer to call it a transition. It is. I mean, transition it is. implies you know where you're going and this is how you get from A to B. We, we, we're not even talking about... B yet. We're talking about extending A as long as we can. I would disagree with, with Dan on only one point though. It's, yes, it's, post, it's postponing um, really properly leaving the EU, but it's not postponing one important fact, is, which is that on the 30th of March 2019, the UK will no longer have a say on any ah, yeah, EU yeah, laws no, whatsoever. And I think that will be a massive shock to, to the British political system when suddenly we're outside, but we have no control over any of the laws we have to accept and implement. And that is why it was quite ironic, really, to hear Boris Johnson say after the Prime Minister's speech that he was happy that she'd kind of finally knocked the, the, the Norway option, uh, you know, the EEA EFTA option on, on the head in her speech, because in effect, the, uh, you know, the transition period that we're talking about now is the Norway option. It's it, it's Britain. It's, it's, laughable, it's, it's, it's it? Britain yes. becoming. It's Britain becoming a rule taker. I, I I think that puts it that you put the nail on the head there. I mean, it is absolutely laughable that on the one hand she can with a straight face say that we're not going to sort of um, put ourselves in a vassal state position and then say but in the meantime we will have to carry on as normal and as Jennifer says but without any say if that's not the vassal state that the Brexiteers always feared I don't know what is and that could cause problems isn't it couldn't it in the domestic political arena in Britain. I mean, there were already reports over the weekend that Boris Johnson had pressured May in her speech to sort of uh, constrain or reduce the possible period of a transition period from from a rumoured five years to, you know, down to two. I mean, there are clearly sort of Brexiters in the cabinet, Dan, who are who are champing at the bitter at the prospect of what's uh, what's what's coming down the track. 
Yes, I mean, I think that next week's party conference in Manchester is going to be um, interesting, <laughs> shall we say. I mean, we, we have got We've had open warfare in the cabinet for several months now, and I suppose in some respects it's remarkable that the show has managed to stay on the road. But I think that there are a few things that are beginning to really worry me. I mean, we're beginning to see signs that Philip Hammond, um, supposedly the quiet man, the Mm. calm man, the voice of moderation, is losing his patience. I mean, the reports this morning in the papers that he uh, was refusing to uh, endorse May as Mm. a long-term prime minister. I mean, I think we know that she's getting grief from the right of her party, but when she gets grief from the left as well... Mm. You've got to start to wonder what is she for? What is, you know, who is she serving? Um, and I also think the other thing that um, um, we, we, we may want to jump onto is the um, the mess that is DEXU, the, the department for exiting the EU that has managed to lose um, over 120 staff since it was set up only seemingly yesterday. I mean, it's, it's now lost its permanent secretary, Ollie Robbins, who has been... Um, moved back to Downing Street and effectively now is working for the Prime Minister, not um, David Davis. And I think that's a sign that they really don't... I mean, it, it, everything's fallen apart. I mean, the person she put in charge of negotiating our exit is now no longer able to lean on the civil service to make it happen for him. Uh, I, I, it feels... end days. I just can't see how this is uh, sustainable for any government, let alone a government with a, with a minority. Mm. And, and contrast that, Jennifer, with Brussels, where it it does seem, at least from the you know from the outside, as uh, as as if pretty much everything is is sweetness and light. And I mean, the EU is 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 displaying quite remarkable unity still, isn't it? In the in the face of Brexit. Yes, it's true to say that Brexit has united the EU as almost nothing else has done in the last 20 or 30 <laughs> years. And everyone could certainly agree on the fact that the UK should have to pay as, as much as as possible in order to uh, you know to, to quit the EU and uh, and uh, make sure that nobody is out of, of pocket. But I, I think I mean we we don't know if that how long that unity will, will hold out for. But at the moment, it feels a bit like it's a precious Ming vase, and and no country wants to be the, the the country to drop the EU unity and to smash it to smithereens. And it's something everyone's guarding very carefully. So we haven't seen any squabbles over where to locate the EU agencies that are going to leave the mm. UK, for instance. We haven't seen any squabbles over the the timing that. Um, that was agreed earlier this year. Of course, there, there could be there could be divisions to come in the in the in the coming months. There could be a split between those who who, who fear who who stand to lose more from Brexit because of the close economic links with the UK, and there could be those who want to take a, a tougher line. But so far, we haven't seen any evidence of that. And I think um, everyone's very glad to stand behind Barnier and let mm. him be the front man and, and do the work. And frankly, it's because there are many other issues that are bigger priorities for the rest of the EU. Of course. You could sort of run through, run through a few of them briefly. You've got the, um, everyone in Germany, of course, obsessed by the, or very much um, focused on mm. coalition building. In France, it's all about the future of the Eurozone and what, what uh, the new German government will mean for mm-hmm. that. Spain's preoccupied by a, a, a referendum mm, Catalonia. Um, yeah. in Catalonia, in Italy. They also have elections next year. Mm. Poland, Hungary have their own disagreements with the EU on on the, the rule of law and uh, freedom of, uh, of education and press freedom. So there, there are all sorts of 
other issues that are crowding for people's attention. So at the moment, EU leaders are quite content for for Barnier and for the Commission to do the heavy lifting on Brexit. And and let's see um, in a few months' time whether they they feel ready to to move on to trade talks. At the moment, there is no urgency to do so. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's let let us move on to trade talks then. The whole question of the future relationship, which is obviously the big sort of black hole at the at the heart of Brexit, really. Um, now, I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but for, it, it strikes me increasingly that the core problem here is, you know, that the UK and Theresa May did it again last Friday in Florence. You know, the, the UK is speaking repeatedly of, of the shared challenge and the, and the shared responsibility of Brexit and keeps calling on the EU to be imaginative and creative and, and you know, come up with some kind of deal that works, that, you know, works well for everyone. But it doesn't seem to me that that's the way that most Europeans see it. You know, as you say, Jennifer, on the continent, most people have largely moved on from Brexit. They've got other fish to fry. And, you know, and to mix sort of metaphors, you know, Britain's decision basically to shoot itself in the foot is pretty much Britain's problem. Um, But so, you know, anyway, I mean, Theresa May has repeatedly said Britain's leaving the single market, leaving the customs union, but we still want a deep and special trading relationship with Europe. She's ruled out the sort of high access, low control arrangement that that Norway has, as we as we just discussed, because it's not compatible with taking back control. She's also ruled out the sort of low access, high control deal, which the opposite of Norway's, which is the the, the free trade agreement, the sort of basic, you know, you know, plain vanilla with a few bit of ex- bits of extra tagged on the uh, free trade agreement that the EU's just signed with Canada because that, she says, that would, would limit uh, market access too much. And she seems to be saying, well, she is saying Britain's deal has to be unique. Now that, I mean, it's still sounding like having your cake and eating it, isn't it, Dan? Yes. Um, I suppose the little chink, the silver lining that the site of um, a far-right party gaining 13% of the vote in Germany of all places and and second party, I think, in eastern, old mm. east Germany, mm. um, are on the basis of a concern about open borders and immigration, albeit a different one, a refugee crisis rather than an EU citizens issue, separate issues, but nonetheless, fundamentally, still basically the same a, a too many foreigners issue, issue. Too many joint yeah. foreigners. Yeah. Um, I, I think that does offer some hope on the cake and eat it front. I think we know that uh, the Macron government also has a concern that, um, uh, th- which is expressed on this issue of posted workers, which is um, mm. uh, employees who come from um, on, on, on mass in, into in, into France, uh, arguably undercutting French workers. It's trying to push back on that front. I think that what Britain wants is just some acknowledgement that um, uh, these issues can be discussed. We've also seen a suspension of Schengen arrangements during the terrorism mm. scares, many of which are still suspended. And I think Britain just wants um, to be able to sit down and say, look, let's talk about free movement. We don't want to abolish it completely, but we want it to be part of this negotiation process. And that this idea that these four principles, these four freedoms are completely sort of set in stone like they're sort of, uh, uh, you know, from the Old Testament or something, um, is looking harder and harder to, to sustain. To, to sustain. So that's my little note of optimism. I do think there is room for manoeuvre there. Jennifer, room for manoeuvre in Brussels on that? I'm, I'm not so sure, actually, on, on freedom of movement. I think there is, there always has been room for manoeuvre, and, and part of the problem may have been that, that 
British governments didn't use the room for manoeuvre they had as EU mm. members in order to to register people and to uh, to check on people coming in. They didn't make use of the uh, the seven year transition period when uh, Central and Eastern European countries joined the EU in 2004. They could have delayed the arrival of workers then, and mm. as everyone knows, they chose not to. So I, I think. I think it's 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 very it will be hard to find uh, much flexibility outside the EU on on freedom of movement if if the UK does want a very close uh, relationship or even sort of quasi membership of the single market I think they will struggle to dilute the four freedoms because once once you dilute one for one country then why would you not dilute another for another country who has their own particular issues so then you just you start you, you open up everything but just, I mean, it's just to throw maybe one more sort of model or country into the discussion. Mm. We've talked about Norway and we talked about Canada, but there's also the Ukrainian model as well, uh, which is maybe something that might be useful for the UK in terms of Ukraine has or is in the process of, of getting this uh, deep and, and comprehensive free trade agreement with the EU. But there's also an extra, lots of extra elements to that involving security and, and defense. So you could imagine the UK deal would... Uh, would sort of loosely follow that model, obviously being more more specific to the UK. So I think there is there is room for for something bespoke. I don't think it necessarily has to be off the shelf, but it's going to be a, a long and an arduous uh, agreement to to negotiate, and it's certainly not something that can be done quickly. And it'll take many years, and it'll be all the more difficult, Dan, as we said, when you have you know half the government wanting something completely different from the other half. Yeah, I, and I think that that paralysis in Westminster is um, is stretching patience and stretching tolerance for for everybody. Really, you, you mean there is a vision? I think Theresa May is right to aim for it. There is a harmonious um, end state that we can reach as close neighbours and partners. Mm. That um, um, that in twenty years' time, thirty years' time, it's possible to imagine. Um, but I think in order to get there on any sort of meaningful short-term time frame, it requires clarity, goodwill, trust, all the things that we just don't have at the moment. And I think that fundamentally goes back to the sort of weakness of the political settlement in the in the UK. If there's been a referendum that had been won comprehensively 90% mm. government with a 200-seat majority driving it through um, – it could play hardball. It is trying to play hardball, but it could play hardball in a mean, in, 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 in a meant way. Mm. And perhaps we could get to some this end state. But right now, it's just a rabble. It's a mess, and that is poisoning the world. It's making uh, this um, uh, end state. I think increasingly, to my mind, look more likely that we crash out um, uh, with the consequences that it has for the economy and for people. Um, and then slowly, surely, the next generation. And by that, I mean you know, twenty years, thirty years. <laughs> pick up the pieces and we try and rebuild from the rubble I, but I see the kind of sort of you know dream bespoke um, arrangement that the government wants um, receding far off into the horizon at the moment. Jennifer is, is that the way it, it, it feels from uh, from Brussels? I, I'm not sure I would agree that there's there's a greater chance now that Britain might might crash out of um, of the talks. I, I do think there is a, a bespoke agreement in reach and I, I think the, the Florence speech that we saw from Theresa May last week was was beginning to show more realism, beginning to, to take some steps in the EU's direction, and I think that was welcome. But I think it will be a long path to, to get this bespoke deal. And I do think the EU will be worried that the, the British government 
um, will maybe str- will struggle to fulfil its um, its promises, especially when we do get to 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 April 2019. If if that is when we leave the EU, which is which seems very likely at the mm. moment, uh, Britain will leave and suddenly find itself paying into the EU budget and, and adopting all EU laws, but without having any say. And I think that's going to be. A, a huge a watershed uh, moment shot for, for British yeah. politics, and I think that could complicate the path to negotiate a, a, a trade agreement with the EU, and 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 likely is going to cause the EU to to, to be concerned about the strength and the, and the stability of the British government. So. Mm. It's a very, it's a very volatile situation. Yeah, and well, all that, of course, far in the future. And at the moment, um, it, it doesn't look like Article 50 talks are progressing as anybody would hope. We shall see how that plays out. That, uh, I'm afraid, is it for this week. My thanks to Dan and Jennifer for joining me today. Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter. Just search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. That's all one word, brexitpodcast at theguardian.com. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means. And thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.